Good morning, and welcome back to the Patreon-exclusive podcast, Friends of Dorothy! What? No. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, uh, my name is B. Peterson, uh, I'm your host, and with me as always is... <laughs> um, myself, uh, Mark Edward Hoyk. <laughs> so, we do a podcast, Mark Edward Hoyk and I, called Dance, Dorothy Dance, where we're currently going through all of the films, all of the surviving films of the great, uh, uh, queer 30s Hollywood director, Dorothy Arsner. However, um, her, her films are kind of hard to get a hold of, uh, a majority of them. And some of them, like two of them, are now part of the Criterion Collection. Um, some of them you can get on DVDs. A lot of them there have never been official releases for. Or if they have been, it's been like, you know, for museums kind of thing. And so it's... Uh, and so getting a hold of them is, is kind of difficult. But what Mark and I have uh, embarked on is we are creating a complete, quote unquote, uh, Dorothy Arsner box set, DVD box set. And that takes time because of shipping. Like we've got our 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 DVD for working girls is coming all the way from Spain. Uh, so that's that's going to take a minute to get here. Uh, but in the meantime, we wanted to continue to do something. And uh, Mark had the great idea of just doing uh, some doing a, f- a focus on the collaborators of Dorothy Arsner. And we s- decided to start uh, with uh, a frequent collaborator with Dorothy Arsner who wrote a lot of her scripts, which is the great Zoe Akins. And Zoe Akins is not only a literal friend of Dorothy, she is also a uh, metaphorical friend of Dorothy, so it all fits together nicely. Yeah, no, I was because I was thinking of like what we what we call the podcast, like what we would call this this spinoff series if we just call it like, you know, Dance Dorothy Dance Bonus or whatever. And then you came up with Friends of Dorothy. And for a second, I was like, where do I know that phrase? And so I looked it up and I was like, aha. So, yeah, for for those of you who don't know, Friends of Dorothy is a slang for um, a queer, as they say, uh, as you know, the longtime stereotype of gay men was that they were hugely into Judy Garland. Yes, yeah. So it's a, it's a great title and so yeah, and so we're doing we're doing Zoe Akins and I I and there a lot of her films aren't available ready available. She was actually a primarily a playwright um and a, and most of her credits are not actually her scripts but they're adapted from her plays but i was like you know what i'm not interested in seeing men's adaptations of her plays so let's see what find her her like actual scripts like she did several for arsner some of which we've covered several of which we haven't yet um but and the earliest that i could find for a, for an accessible um, uh, relatively speaking, accessible uh, uh, s- script by Zoe Akins was for the Bob Z- Robert Z. Leonard uh, film uh, called from 1934 called Outcast Lady, and it's Robert Z. Leonard. Uh, maybe you might not have heard of him, but he was a pretty big deal back in back in the the golden age of Hollywood. He directed, I believe, two Best Picture winners. Um, the Divorcee and The Great Zigfield. Um, and he did like the 1940 adaptation of Pride and Prejudice. He's, he, he was a huge, he was huge back then. Um, but nowadays, not a ton of his, not a ton of his films have really lasted in the popular consciousness. Yes. You know, that, that he, 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 that if you look at his resume, it's got a lot of credits on it, but you know, they're all, you know, they're back in kind of uh, the factory era of Hollywood where you right. were you were basically cranking out a movie almost uh, every 10 days. And there were probably <laughs> uh, four movies being shot on the lot simultaneously that they you know, that these were just coming out left and right. It's one of the reasons you know, why. uh you know, the idea of a week long run or double features or a lot of these kind of notions of of uh, theatrical exhibition that are not as familiar to us anymore came about, you know, that there was just a glut of product because you, know, you didn't you didn't have television. You didn't have uh, that any 
competition beyond you know the radio and and even there oftentimes radio was you know promoting film or cross promoting uh that you had uh, shows like Lux Radio Theater where they were doing condensed versions of these very movies to try and it, it kind of I guess kind of the same way that you see a trailer that gives you too much information it's what uh, Roger Ebert called uh you know the supermarket cheese principle that if you go into a supermarket and you know they're handing out samples of cheese you've tasted it you know everything about it now they're hoping you're going to want a bigger block yeah and yeah this and and this guy I mean yeah the He's literally got 162 direct, directing credits. It's it's a lot of those are for shorts. Uh, I I'd probably say a, a slight majority of those are shorts, but still, 80 80 films uh, to to your name is 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 a huge amount for anyone. I'll I'll say this: uh, the film that probably most people don't realize they know of uh, Robert Z. Leonard's is a uh, a little thriller he did called The Bribe because footage from The Bribe is used in Steve Martin's Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid which oh, if you've yeah. never seen is a is a wonderful uh, homage to uh, film noir where you know for you know very cleverly for the time they shot in black and white and we're able to film him and stage him in a fashion that he looks like he's interacting with Humphrey Bogart and Veronica Lake and Peter Lorre. And it was very tough to make because, you know, they didn't they didn't even have really good home video at the time. I mean, there was home video, but most of these movies weren't out there. So, you know, you're Carl Reiner, you're Steve Martin. You can call up the vaults and say, oh, yeah, let us look at these movies. But they had to take copious notes on who all these character names are so that they can integrate them into the script and make it seamless. But I've when I saw it as a kid, I remembered the names of all of these movies because they list them in the credits, and the bribe was in there. All right, cool. <laughs> the Outcast Lady is 1934 film. Um, it's a screenplay by Zoe Akins. Um, it's adapted from a book by Michael Arlen, who was a fairly well-known uh, writer um, from that era. And, um, oh my word, this movie is so queer. Like, I was not prepared for this movie to not just be, have queer coding, but like, be, like, as much as you can be explicit about it, explicitly about, about gay people. (laughs) Well, it, 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 it is the most dominant reading that people apply to it, that it is still kept just vague enough that mm-hmm. there's plausible deniability. But yes, you know, <laughs> if you know anything, and we will go into uh, kind of Zoe Aiken's personal life, especially what her mindset would have been at the time that she did this adaptation. Yeah. Uh, the, and the pre, you know, the the previous, because uh, this was originally done as a silent film with Greta Garbo called A Woman mm-hmm. of Affairs. So, right. so this material had been circulating for for a while, and um, it's 1934. So we're not quite in the grasp, you know, the the iron grasp of the code as as it became later, but. There are. They were still saying, "All right, you can't do this. You can't mm-hmm. talk about this." And yeah, yeah. Because I was, I was wondering as I was watching this, is like, hold on, hold on. When, when did the production code code start? Because this is this is pretty much right on the cusp of 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 the Hayes Code coming into to full bloom. And and also, I believe the tail end of Prohibition. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because there um, there are references to the fact of how difficult it is to get liquor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and specifically in regards to one character, which which we'll talk about. But um, but yeah, uh, and 
yeah, so let's 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 set the stage. So this this film is about a woman named Iris March, and uh, as played by uh, Constance Bennett, and uh, she is so deeply in love. She's always been in love with Napier, Napier, who's been off at India ever since children. They've been in, they've been they've practically been in they've been in love but she is not worthy of him because uh, well we should set the stage that uh, this takes place in england oh yes yes very much so uh, yeah and there's the yeah one of the threads is like britain's relationship with india is is a, is a part of this um but yeah, Napier um, went off to India. He was a part of, I think he was part of the military, and now he's went, gone into commercial stuff. But basically, they're in love. Napier and Iris are in love, but Napier's father detests Iris. Like, you are not worthy of my son. And in just, like, this, I, it's in, in a seed like where she goes is like, I want to marry your son. Can can I please? And he's like, bleep, no, woman. Um, it's 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 rather staggering how explicitly misogynist he is in that scene. That uh, that he's 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 got he's got a burr under his belt, uh, over the fact that they. The family clearly used to have money because mm. you know their father ran with hit with him back in the day. So they've so they've known each other for years, but that you know though know, the father died ignominiously and her brother is a drunk, and that you know that that in order to maintain what's left of their social standing, she has to marry rich. Right. You know that yeah, they're just it, they're, that they're coasting on fumes at this mm -hmm. point, which which I mean is is kind of funny because she is clearly very well off, um, but but in but in the well she's well off in the sense of uh, the way that you know, your your father hides behind the curtains of his new hundred thousand dollar home because he doesn't have the two dollars to pay the paper boy. You know, that yeah. you've got, yeah, that you're, you're, you've got all of these wonderful material things, but at the beginning of the movie, she's asking uh, the butler, oh, uh, why didn't your wife help out? Because uh, she wants to be paid. So, you know, <laughs> yeah, he, he yeah, likes but... her, he's going to do her a favor, his wife is not going to be as generous. Yeah, no, it's but I, it's just it's just a funny thing for me whenever I watch, and it's typically older. But this is also still a new a thing that happens nowadays. It's like, oh man, we're barely scraping by, and they're like in this like super nice house, and they've got all these, and they're in a different outfit every single scene, and you're just like, are you are you really struggling? But anyway, um, but yeah, and. Napier goes goes back off to India. They'll wait for each other, kind of thing. Um, but wouldn't you know it? It goes on too long, and Napier's struggling. And and Gerald is like, you know what? You just you just gotta. Why don't can't you see that my best friend boy right here that that you two need to be together and so and because you know he he clearly loves you he wants to be with us I mean you and um and and so it doesn't work out and and um and Iris marries boy who is played by Ralph Forbes um who we've seen before on this podcast he was in the last of Mrs Cheney. Um, and, uh, he's also in Christopher Strong, which is a film that we'll be getting to on Dance Dorothy Dance. Uh, but yeah, I just, I was, and given, I think it's funny because in our conversation about The Last of Mrs. Cheney, we talked about like, you know, the, the, what was going on with his character. And I, I thought initially thought it's like, oh yeah, he's clearly gay right like that's the dirt that they're gonna find on him but no it turns out that he was with his cousin and with his female cousin and like that didn't anyway but i think i just think that's funny given what happened what everything with this film but but yeah and so she marries boy um and then on their wedding night she receives a note from an unidentified woman and this was this is where it all turns is that the note we never see the note 
We never see it. We never see what it says. But it's like, you were in jail under another name, like a couple years ago or whatever, for a terrible crime. And we never know what the crime is. And I just... So was this your first time seeing this film? Yes. Okay. Uh, because this was my also my first time seeing this film. And I'm wondering what initially you thought the crime was. Like, just in your head, what you were spec- speculating it to be. Because for me, I initially thought, it was like, oh, he raped someone. Like, he did, like, some sort of sexual assault kind of thing. Or maybe, like, it's probably not murder. But, like, he used this. And now it's all going to be about protecting this precious man's reputation kind of thing. Like, we can't let him reveal to be the abuser. And that's what the movie was going to be about. Turns out, no, that's not where this movie's going kind of thing. But I was just wondering what your first impressions of that scene were. Well, my first, uh, I mean, my first impressions did not go quite as dark. You know, <laughs> my my first impression was, you know, the fact that, again, she's, you know, she's going into the, she's going into this because while she does not love him, she doesn't dislike him, that she finds him pleasant enough company, but that also she is... You know, she is marrying to keep up her social standing and, you know, to and to and to be to she has to marry wealthy. Right. So my first thought was that his crime involved financial fraud, you know, that he had that he had that he had swindled somebody to get their fortune or that he was, you know, he that he did not have the money he professed to have, you know, that he was. That he'd been in, you know, debtor's prison or something, or mm-hmm. yeah, that that it was something that it was something that was going to definitely affect her social standing or and the perception of her in the community you know, by being associated with him, which you know is, you know, you went darker, I went lighter, and we met in the middle. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and but regardless of whatever the crime is, whatever our first impressions. As soon as she finds out, like, she is horrified, um, Iris is. And Eddie's like, I, I don't know how I was ever going to show this to you. And now that it's happened, ah! Uh, and he just goes and he just jumps out a window. And even though her reaction is like, no, we don't, I just, we won't ever speak of it. And it'll be okay, kind of thing. But nope, he's gone. He's out of the picture. <laughs> he's, and... And yeah, and it was it wasn't until the scene where she confronts the family that it finally clicked for me what was going on. But basically that there's a doctor on the scene and there's Hillary, who is a friend of the family kind of thing. And they see the papers like, oh, yes, well, we should tell people. And she's like, no, please, no, don't tell them. It's like, but you do realize how this will look bad on you, right? And she's like, yes, but I must save his reputation. And so I'm still thinking, I was like, okay, he committed some terrible crime. And now it's all just about protecting the patriarchy. But as soon as we meet up with boy's family, and as soon as Gerald played by um, Hugh Williams, who we've seen before. But as soon as Gerald enters the, enters the scene, I'm like, oh, this is what this is about. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, once yeah, that, in a sense, she may have already known something about her brother that uh, others uh, have, have not, you know, the, oh, the love that dare not speak its name, which was mm. illegal in England at that time. So it is the most logical conclusion of uh, this mystery crime that is never spoken of. Uh, right. But that y- you do get the vibe that uh, that boy is you know, kind of oblivious to uh Gerald's true feelings about him that in mm. that that boy that you know that boy has well that well it's I mean if if there was ever such an on the nose name for a movie character that, <laughs> that he is literally a babe in the woods uh, uh. <laughs> that he if 
he is that if he is truly gay then he perhaps he is looking to iris because he feels like at least i can be you know safe with her or i've mm-hmm. known her since childhood i can stand her company yeah i just need a beard yes uh or more likely because you know, the in the opening scenes, the way he and Gerald interact with each other, Gerald is clearly enamored of Boy, but mm-hmm. Boy is so, so focused on Iris that it may well be that he 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 dabbled in college and <laughs> right. He was bi curious. That's all. <laughs> um, yeah. So that's what this movie's about. It's about it's about gayness. It's about about it's about hiding up gay people. And I gotta say, in from that scene and from that scene where where Gerald reenters the scene after Boy's death, and from then on, every time we see him, I think everyone's everyone's decent in this film. I think there's one scene where the overacting goes a bit too far, but. In general, Hugh Williams knocks it out of the park in this movie. I, his just, his grief is just like, how could you, he is so much more broken up over Boy's death than Iris is, than even Boy's family is. Like, he is, he is livid, he is sobbing, he's just like, how could you do this to me? Like, you clearly, clearly, he was never fit for you. Like, he was too good for you. He should have been with me! Like, that's pretty much the vibe. And just every scene we get with him is just... There's so much emotion pouring out of him, and maybe it's just because I think he's the most attractive actor in the film. But, but maybe that's a part of it. Who knows? Who's to say? But, but well, Hugh I, I, Williams would, I is. I wouldn't kick him out of bed for <laughs> spilling the wine. <laughs> uh, but Hugh Hugh Williams is great, and yeah, and and yeah, the, it from then on, this movie is it's it's about. It's about the the cover up of of gay love, and I was just, yeah. I mean, Michael Arlen, the guy who wrote the book, it was at this point that I started wondering, is like, hold on, was this in the book originally, kind of thing? And I couldn't find any like evidence that Michael Arlen was gay or bi or anything like that. However, he was frequently referred to as a dandy. 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 <laughs> Well, uh, I, I should point out the the one kind of big thing that Michael Arlen did that might still be familiar to people who follow film is that he created a uh, a gentleman detective character called the Falcon, which oh. uh, was uh, adapted into several films. Uh, initially, they starred George Sanders, and uh, then uh, his brother took over the role. And if you've ever watched uh, Looney Tunes, there's at least uh, two uh, Looney Tunes. Uh, one of them, I think, uh, uh, there, there's multiple Looney Tunes involving uh, Porky Pig dealing with uh, yowling cats outside, keeping him awake. And the gag is he pulls a book from the shelf that, and it says The Falcon and he throws it at the cats. And then okay. the book is flung back at him, and it says the Falcon returns. <laughs> oh, that's cute. That's good. That's good. Um, but yeah, so dandy is a term that was for basically just very fancy uh, uh, British men who were very concerned with their appearance. That's all. Uh, <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. Well, he, he was a fancy lad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, but yeah. So and. So then we get uh, a pretty much a time jump. We get this great montage, I'll say. This great montage of basically Iris just kind of the life that she's living. She's living it up. And we get this... There's it's almost like eerie, like like shots of casinos and like parties and all this stuff. And then there's this superimposed shot of like a devil figure, like go like going like with his arms outstretched, going ah ha ah, ah, kind of thing over the frame. And I was like, I just kind of rewound and rewatched that bit. I was like, what what who is this guy? Kind of thing. We never see him again. But it's just but we get this. It's, anyway, we get the montage. <laughs> I, I, I think that was, uh, I think that's supposed to be maybe uh, either a, 
a decoration from one of the uh, you know illicit clubs that she's uh, hanging out in because the mm-hmm. the the story is that after after boy commits suicide and it is you know believed in the press that she drove him to it because she didn't love him and he you know mm-hmm. he found out that you know, that it was all a, a tragic charade that you know <laughs> she be, she inherits his fortune but you know she's you know, she she's basically become like Anna Nicole Smith. You know that you know she's everybody is interested in her, but they you know they're all hate watching her. That right. You know, that <laughs> it, 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 when you know she's in a restaurant, there's a couple of uh, biddies looking at her and it's like, what did she do? Nothing except everything. Yes, and there's and there's and then there's a great bit. It's like, oh, that's right. Her husband died, committed suicide on 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 their wedding night. It's like, oh, yes, that's what some say. But like people who ought to know these kinds of things, like my hairdresser, said that she pushed him. Kind of anyway. Just yeah. There's that great little great little aside there. But yeah, and then we kind of pick up with Napier. Um, who I, I don't know if I've mentioned is played by Herbert Herbert Marshall, um, and he is now um, engaged to another woman, um, who seems quite lovely. Um, but and then it's a, basically a pro. The rest of the film is Iris coming back into her family's life, her brother, and who is now basically suffering and then dying of alcoholism. And then uh, everything with uh, with Napier and kind of trying to reconnect with reconnect with him, all thanks to Hillary. Yeah, that that Hillary has always that. Well, we should also point out uh, Hillary and uh, the doctor who first investigated the 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 suicide. The doctor is played by Leo G. Carroll, and mm-hmm. if you've you know, been to the Rocky Horror Picture Show, you know that he was over a barrel when Tarantula took to the hills. But um, he uh, he also, uh, even if you've never seen him in, you know, older films, you might know him as uh, Mr. Waverly, who was the head of the espionage agency in the original Man from Uncle television series. Okay. So he, he was uh, the person giving a, Ilya Kriakin and Napoleon Solo their assignments. All right, and yeah, and then uh, Hillary, who is played by Robert Lorraine, um, his most recent credit um, is he was in uh, uh, Birds of Prey and the Fantabulous Emancipation of One Harley Quinn. Oh no, I'm sorry, Birds of Prey from 1930. Excuse me, <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, he was actually. I'm 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 trying to find he seems like he was more of a, a theater and milit he was like a military guy kind of thing. Um like even more so than he was an actor. Um but yeah, no, he's he's good in this film. Yeah, so he's he's never understood why she insists on shouldering all of the blame herself. You know, he right. so he's been trying to surreptitiously take steps to reintegrate her with the early to mend the rift between her and her brother you know, that you know he that he's he's never un, he's never understood her her motivations and so he 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 when when Napier announces that he is going to be married uh he makes sure that she gets invited to the wedding when when uh when Gerald takes sick, he writes to her and says, you know, your brother's dying. You need to come home and, you know, make peace with him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah. And then, and we get to see Gerald again and he is just, you know, he's, he's dying of alcoholism. Um, he's, he's got a, he's got a beard now, you know, is uh, a, a lot of, a lot of, uh, of stubble, which, you know, he, it means he's in bad shape if he doesn't have a clean shave. Uh, well, uh, I, I think in the original novel, it's, a, it's a there. I think he's supposed to also have syphilis, although I don't remember okay. if that was either him or a boy that, the, okay. The, the, but there was definitely a mention of syphilis in the original source material, and that was removed from from this mm-hmm. film. Yeah, that that's not in here. But 
yeah, it's it's implied that he's drinking himself to death. Um, and there's, it's just there's a brilliant. I one one of my favorite scenes in the film is when Iris basically goes up to his door, to Gerald's door, and it's like, just let me in, kind of thing. And Gerald's like, no. And then she leaves tearful. And as an as a man comes up to Gerald's room, um, who we who we I don't think we ever see again. And he's like, was I just saw a woman down there, kind of thing. And it's like, so she was real. Um, but don't yeah, make fun and, of the angels. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. She she's wearing this lavish dress. Oh yeah. When she goes to 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 visit him. Yeah, and it's it's got this like weird collar thing and like all of these it, strange folds. Like I some like we've a, a lot of the fashion that we've we've seen on as going through this podcast. Like everything I we did not pay uh, uh, enough respects to the incredible costume design in Craig's wife. Everything Rosalind Russell was wearing in that movie was just so sharp and uh, just so. It, like, it perfectly fit the character here. Um, but And like the bride wore red, obviously the the dress in the bride wore red is stunning. But like the the outfit she wear, like specifically, and she's got like, it's got like a whole cape and everything. It's a, it's a really. Well, it, it's, it's in a sense her embra- embracing her status as being this notorious woman. You know, the, right. the same, yeah. you know, because and that which is a recurring thread in uh, the Arzner movies that we saw. And, you know, you go back to, to Betty Davis and Jezebel showing up at a function in a red dress when it's supposed to be clearly black or white. You mm-hmm. know, that that it, it's it's her, you know, kind of, you know, showing showing off, you know, it, be passive aggressively saying, I don't care. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and then, you know, they meet, Napier meets back up with, uh, with Iris and meets the, the, his fiance and Hillary and, you know, it's all quite pleasant and, and she's, but Napier can still doesn't forgive her for, for what, for what she did to, to boy. And, and then it gets into basically the, the, the the final act if you will of the film is the the fall of iris and this is i think where the film kind of lost me a bit um where it started so it's 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 kind of complicated so kind of out of nowhere iris is dying um <laughs> well, for, and, well first off gerald dies yes yes and, that's right so and, gerald and dies gerald dies and he di- but he die he dies forgiving her that he when he's with Hillary and he's saying all the hate is seeping out of me mm-hmm. right yeah uh, and uh, we I, we don't know whether Hillary has told him the truth about what happened yes he he tells Iris that she, that he never that he never learned um, though. Yeah, but I but going back to the the scene where they're act, Hillary and Gerald are talking, I can't quite remember. He's forgiven her, but she didn't get the chance to see him one last time. So, you know, she so even though she's getting it secondhand, there's that feeling of I did I you know, I died without with my brother died without my presence and you know, and it it eats at her physically. Yeah, and then we, and then Iris, you know, she's fallen ill. She's in Paris, um, and the doctor phones up Napier um, and says, "Hey, Iris is dying. You probably should come see her. I don't know, but there's also something you should know." And tells her the secret is like, "Did you know that boy didn't actually die? I was there on the scene when he died." and it's in reality he he didn't die because he was ashamed of her it's because he was atoning for his sins um and napier's like oh shoot well let me get over there and be with um this woman who i now automatically forgive kind of thing be only because i learned that boy was gay um and and this is kind of where my and i'm not sure 
if the film wants me to do this, but it is where my uh, uh, fondness of Napier begins to seep away. Um, where the only reason that he's going back to 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 be with her is to comfort her in, in her waning hours is because he learns the truth. It's not because he of out of the goodness of his heart. It's because I don't know because it's homophobia. Well, I I I I got the impression that he was probably. He was probably going to visit her regardless of right, because because as I recall, he doesn't learn about boys' transgression until he actually gets to the hospital. So he was already he was already coming to see her, right. and it's you know, it's while they've been while he's waiting to get into a room that you know the doctor spills the beans, and yeah, that, that's right, I forgot. And yeah. so so it at so it in a sense it adds more urgency to the situation yeah and and this is and when i mentioned overacting this is where i was act- talking about because uh the nurse because iris has fallen asleep the nurse takes the flowers out of her room and iris and constance bennett just is just overacting so much here she just stumbles out of the room and she's like my flowers from Napier where are they and then Napier's like Iris I'm here and she's like Napier and it's just like that whole scene where she's like very uh, dramatically dying kind of thing is like leave me to die all this stuff I was just like all right Constance you're at it to quote to quote uh the theater kid from Booksmart is like okay you're at a 10 I need you at a (laughs) 2 but anyway but yeah so there there, there's a little bit it kind of the kind of the thing with um with uh 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 was it was it Ruth Chatterton in uh uh Sarah Sarah and Son Son. (laughs) just like you're you're going a little hard here yeah (laughs) Kind of thing. Or uh, the 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 callback line that I always used at Rocky that no one else really got in on that, but it's still one of my personal favorites is uh, just you know after Frank has died and Riff has said and soon we will return to uh, the shores of our beloved planet and just before so just before Magenta starts her line I yell oh shit here comes the Oscar speech <laughs> sweet sweet transsexual. Land of night and high electric bills, <laughs> but yeah, and so Iris magically gets better. Then somehow, <laughs> I this is what I say. It's like the the last half of this. It's it's kind of goes. There's a lot of of. It's kind of all over the place. Where suddenly she's dying, and now she's okay, and they're going to be with Napier. But then, but then, and then, uh. uh Napier's father re-enters the picture and gives practically the same speech as like, "How dare you try to be with my son? Ruin his wedding." <laughs> well, and and what's and it's very, you know, it's very apparent that when she meets the father again, she's in a much simpler dress. She's yes, not wearing I, a flashy outfit like uh, she did mm-hmm. when she returned from Paris. You know that you know, that she's she's you know you know taking it she's going back down to a two uh mm-hmm. in, in in her right. lifestyle that she does i think she still reconciled herself that uh she she doesn't want she doesn't want to break up napier's wedding but mm-hmm. you know she just wants she just wants to you know she just wants to be back among the gang again yeah, like yeah, she's what is she has a line to the effect it's like don't you the room is exactly the same as it was all those years ago kind of thing and we're all here together again. Um but yeah, and and then it leads to I think it would have been my favorite moment of the film had it not been undercut by the ending. Um but where this is and this reminded me while watching this of a film that I just watched this past week, uh, a new release um, uh, from director uh, Shatara Michelle Ford called Test Pattern. Um, and so what happens in the scene is the the father is basically is like, how dare you? No, no, no. I still can't forgive you. You're a terrible woman. Misogyny, misogyny, misogyny. And then Napier, who knows the dirt about boy... Is like, 
you don't know you this whole everything to discredit uh uh iris has been a has been a great misunderstanding she's been lying to everyone and iris is like hold on you don't know anything about this and he's like no actually i do and i'm going to tell him she's like please don't tell him and he tells he tells he tells everyone it's like no it's because uh boy was a sinful man who did great evil things and and he's ato- and he atoned for those and iris is totally in the clear here and she's just being a good woman kind of thing and in that moment it's like okay screw you napier um and when i say this is test pattern is a film um about a woman who suffers uh, a sexual assault and and basically and it's a film about the nuances of how various people respond to that some people you know immediately like let's let's get this guy kind of thing and so often media it's always about revenge um but this is a film about how like some people like i just need to put this behind me and just like you know kind of thing and it's about a film about how her boyfriend basically just can't let it go um her white boyfriend she is the the main uh, the main character in test pattern um is black and it's basically about like the power dynamics of when you know white privilege and toxic masculinity like even like coming from a seemingly genuine place can just it it robs the women of the agency and i think and that's a great encapsulation of what happens here is she is robbed of her agency she made the decision to basically protect boy um and and live with that and she was robbed of the one thing she did for him mm-hmm. and i that, thought there, that was there's great two pivotal lines in that scene where she says let me keep my secret if i want to and you've taken from me the only gracious thing in my life right and yeah and it's and i was just like great great moment and then and then it's undercut by this ending and i don't know why they ended it this way if this was a production code if this is the original novel if this is zoe Aikinson, i don't know who but it just i was so disappointed that that um napier's father immediately is like oh i'm so sorry forgive me i don't want to be a misogynist i'm just i'm okay with being homophobic kind of thing um and everyone forgives is like no you're okay she's like you guys you you realize what you've done and she goes and she kills herself and that's the end of the movie and i'm just like oh seriously that's that's depressing <laughs> well i think uh well for, uh well i'm trying to organize my thoughts here uh first off we, we should point out that uh among uh zoe aiken's uh credits is uh adapting uh the the story of Camille mm-hmm. you know, and, uh, with uh, which has been done multiple times but it, most famously with Greta Garbo and you know Camille is a tragic socialite story and so you know like you know La Traviata you know the opera where it's you know some it, and all these stories basically involve you know someone who is you know, a woman who is seen as notorious and initially rejected for it, but you know, only vindicated near the end of death. So she, so I feel like Zoe's kind of you know, repurposing elements of Camille into this other story. Uh, secondly, I think they kind of hint at this trajectory where uh, Napier's uh, fiance is remarking on the situation and says, if she dies, I don't know how to manage a man who has nothing to live for. Mm-hmm. And that, that I think this is, and I think this is a harbinger of the end, the ending and that, that as she's, that she's gone, she's gone about her life feeling that, okay, you know, this was, you know, I I can't I can't have the man I truly love, you know this man that I was you know prepared to to stand to stand by, you know has has left, and I don't, you know I that 
she would rather be she in a sense she would rather be seen as a villain than a victim. You know that her, yeah. that her agency is built around that. Look, I that to a certain degree she does feel a little bit of guilt over the fact of I'm you know I married for money. You know I I didn't I wasn't going to use this guy I wasn't going to be mean to him but no I did not love him. But you know you know when this hor when I learned about this horrible thing that also <laughs> could potentially you know hurt him you know my impulse was was to protect him you know, that that she goes through the movie always protecting others relationships you know when she finds out that Napier is engaged she does not want to break up the engagement you know right. she you know she wants him to go through with it that you know that in the same way that she never she never castigates her brother or talks ill of him you know you know she you know she never is saying you know like you know the temptation would have been when he's you know calling her out after the death you know to you know if this were dynasty it's just like well you're just a you know a terrible rot rotting drunk who was living off of the fortune family fortune the same way I was you know I'm trying to do something about it you know that she's she has never that she has never tried to take anybody down with her you know that right. you know, and you know for you know as as we're talking about this ending i think about uh the you know, uh the last words of uh leonardo dicaprio's protagonist in shutter island you know is it you know is it better to you know die a hero or live as a villain you know that you know he's got all of these he's got all of these uh things that have caused him personal turmoil throughout the entire movie that everyone else is saying no 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 you you were justified and you know you 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 had you know you're not a bad person but that he that he is still part of him that cannot reconcile himself to you know the the horrifying things he's done and experienced and he would rat and he would rather you know you know, if we're or we're if we to get go into another Scorsese and metaphor, uh, Nicolas Cage in uh, bringing out the dead, where he all through the movie he's been having, you know, hallucinations of the patient that he couldn't save, and his final hallucination is you know the patient saying saying to him, you know, suffering was your idea. I haven't seen Bringing Out the Dead. It's one I've been meaning to get to. I've been meaning to get through all of Scorsese's filmography, but that's it. it you know, it 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 feels that un unfortunately, you know, we are in a time where people are kind of taking shots at Scorsese. That in principle, I understand because you know, kill your darlings. You know that <laughs> you know he is he is the establishment now. And you know, it, you know that he should not be held to some sacred standard. You know that there are plenty. Uh, there are plenty of people that I look up to who you know think he's a hack. Um, <laughs> and you know, I, I don't get into fights with them. I just let them speak their piece and consider. Okay, I can see how you get that reading. I can I I can understand that objection. So consequently. Uh, it does seem like you know it's easy to uh, dismiss his curriculum vitae for and but not recognize the fact that you know he has not always worked with just uh, De Niro or DiCaprio and he's not always <laughs> made movies about loners with guns that he yeah sometimes he makes makes movies about loners with Bibles <laughs> well he he may no. he sometimes he makes uh, Alice doesn't live here anymore sometimes he makes right. Kundun sometimes he do, he does Hugo uh, you know. yeah uh, it's funny Harold and I have toyed at several points of doing a Martin Scorsese podcast because it was funny because when I first started this thing Scorsese was one of the people I listed as like everybody always talks about these people like everyone talks about Bergman and Kurosawa and Scorsese and Hitchcock like and like let's put some attention on some other people for crying out loud however 
over the course of recording, like, and with everything, like, Harold and I both agree that we freaking love Scorsese. Like, we're not going to call him perfect or anything. Like, I myself, I don't think he should be doing Killers of the Flower Moon. I don't think that's his story to tell. But, but regardless, it's just like, maybe it might be worth a, like a look going through his, all of his filmography and like highlighting, you know, the lesser knowns, the boxcar Bertha's, the, the Alice doesn't live anymore. Like all of those films, maybe even just like selectively going through the ones that people don't talk about enough kind of thing. Uh, just because uh, people seem to like, when they talk about Scorsese to only talk about his, his gangsta flicks. Kind of yes. Thing. I'll I'll just say this so we can get back on topic. I what <laughs> why I think Scorsese has endured over the years is that before he came on the scene, there was co- all of these uh, divides in film that you know you you could be a populist filmmaker, you could be an art house filmmaker or you could be an exploitation filmmaker, or you could, you know, be just kind of an assembly line filmmaker, you know, that, and, you know, rarely did the streams cross. And Scorsese was the first one of, if not the first, he was the best at synthesizing all of those different elements into something palatable for the average viewer that he can distill all of these disparate elements from all these different strains of filmmaking and put, and use that cinematic those kinds of storytelling forms to do something that is in a sense welcoming to to anyone who comes to it right yeah anyway back to back to outcast lady um, the ending for me, I, I get why, I get why the decision was made for it to end that way. Like, regardless of whether, of, of whose idea it was, whether that was Mark, Michael Arlen's, uh, Zoe Aikens or the studio's decision. But, um, but either way, I think the, what really works about this film is, is I just all of all of the queer coding like what like that is that was easily the most fascinating part like the way that at one point when talk Hillary I think it's Hillary and Iris are talking about Gerald um and she talk and she says instead of saying my brother she says boy's friend and mm-hmm. uh and like like that there is and and at the end of the film, they talk about, like, you know, the tree. It's been mentioned several times throughout the film. But at the end of the film, we see the tree. And there's Napier and Iris in a heart. And then right next to them mm-hmm. is Gerald and Boy. And that's a great last shot of the four of them um, to get, like, the those four names in the frame on the tree. Um, and, yeah, and it's sad that now only Napier's the only one alive. We, you know, it's you, you. don't want to see a heroine like Constance, uh, like Iris, go down. But I feel like, you know, that she that her character has been, you know, choosing to embrace a life of notor- notoriety, you know, so that she can have it on her terms. Mm-hmm. That. That you you kind of that even at the beginning of the movie when she's talking about you know marrying Napier, it's even there it's not so much. I mean she certainly loves Napier, but you know she is also the fact that she needs to get married because she can't pay her household staff. Right. That I think yeah. if she if she had if she had her own way, she likely would not have gotten married. I think maybe yeah, she would maybe. have she would have you know just wanted to you know that you know she wanted to marry Napier because it was the custom of the day and she and she needed the money but that that in that she's she has come into that she's come into this fortune from boy's death and 
she can't you know she can't hang around the old social circle anymore so she's going to to go to paris and you know be uh, you know she's you know that the the implication is that you know she's she's doing all of this you know carousing but there's no joy in it you know you know that that you know you don't you don't really see her you know living it up so much as you know she's being talked of as if she's living it up that that at one point you know before she even you know gets married the boy she is a someone refers to her as the gayest of the gay yes yeah i was gonna bring up that line (laughs) and the fact that you know after watching the movie and digging into uh the life of zoe akins something that you know stuck out to me and we should go into the background that uh uh, zoe akins if she that we don't know that much about her because people weren't you know it was screenwriters you know who gave a damn about screenwriters but that she was likely if she was not bisexual you know she was definite she she had a longtime female companion uh, the actress uh, Jobine Howland who okay. herself had did marry a man in 1936 a uh, a fellow named Arthur uh, Strangus or who <laughs> no I'm sorry Joe jo Bean Harlan's husband died in 1936. Okay. Yo, her so, and Zoe was married for eight months to a to a, a stage designer named Huger C. L. Rum. Uh, I'm I I can't read my own writing. Um, <laughs> you, 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 this is stuff right, you look. can find in the Wikipedia. Yeah. The point is, she was married to this man for eight months. Now, it could have been a lavender marriage. For that matter, Joe Beans could have been a lavender marriage. Hugo Rumbold. Hugo Rumbold. Thank you. Now, you know, these, again, could have just been, you know, marriages of convenience. Well, so, okay, so I just, so I'm just looking at Rumbold's stuff, and it says that he was... He was often described as one of the last of the dandies, <laughs> so there's that. And he actually, and they were married for age month, eight, um, married for eight months, and and then he died. Yes. Yeah. So, she's uh, because of his because of his injuries from World War One. So she's writing, she's writing this uh, adaptation coming out of her own grief of losing, mm-hmm. you know, a partner. You know, whatever he was to her, whether he was a, a romantic interest or just, you know, she was providing him cover that that there is clearly a sense of loss, you know, from having lost him. And if her and Joe Bean's relationship was an open secret that, you know, that very there very well may have been catty talk in the Hollywood corners about what their relationship was you know is in the wake of his passing so I'm not saying that this movie is an extended metaphor on that incident but I'm saying it's hard not to look at this in light of having that knowledge and not think that she was working some stuff out yeah for sure the the queer theory in in this film is is easily the 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 reason that you watch it and we just kind of you know the reason we we started with with this film is just because it was the earliest uh zoe akins joint that we could get a hold of um and yeah and i'm i'm really glad we started with this because you know we're diving in head first with this how one. fortuitous yeah but um just quickly, I want to say uh, we've been we've been skirting over. So the the fiance of 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 Napier uh, was uh, her name is Venice, and she was played by Elizabeth Allen, who um, if we get around to seeing Camille, she is also one of the larger roles in that film. Um, but yeah, um, I think it's a I think it's a decent film. I think Hugh Williams stole the show for me. Um, again, like we 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 we've talked about this, but. Uh, just the, the old cinema isn't necessarily 
not going to touch on all the topics kind of thing. Like there's, it's in there. You just, you just have to search for it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you, and you, you should not have to be doing research into all the talent behind a movie in order to enjoy the movie. It should stand on its own. But if you do know these details about the people who are involved, it adds a nice layer, extra layer to the material and, and a degree of uh, enjoyment and insight and verisimilitude, what, what they call an improv class, the game within the game. Right. Yep. Yeah, and yeah, and so I I hope that this podcast has managed to throw in some of that information for you, so that you, so that anyway, uh, one last thing that I wanted to talk about with you, Mark, before uh, before we left is I want is I didn't want to go by without talking about uh, the tragedy that um, just happened this past week in uh, South Africa. Um, uh, Anna and I just reviewed a film on Fresh in the Margins um, from Lesotho, which is the country encircled by South Africa. But so when this popped, up, I was like, oh, we were literally just talking about this kind of thing. But African cinema from cinema from the various countries in Africa is very much a blind spot for me. I've been starting to work on it. Um, Anna says said the same as much. Uh, but um this past week, there was a wildfire that enveloped um, the library at one of the largest. It was one of the largest uh, collections of South or of African cinema in the world, and like it's, I just I think it it like I I don't know if we've talked specifically about this on this podcast, but like the concept of lost films, like we talked with Dorothy Arzner. Uh, like several of her films are lost and that's just, we're never going to be able to see them. Two of the reels from get your man are lost, but the concept of lost films isn't necessarily an extinct concept that films can still get lost. And I think it's, it's a tragedy. It's a, it's a real, real tragedy. Yes. That, that this happened. Yeah. Uh, that, that we're, we are only now, beginning to even get to a point where uh, the rest of the Western world is actively taking an interest in the film histories of other of other countries long neglected. Scorsese's <laughs> Film Foundation has helped preserve some of uh, you know what African films that we do know of, you know, such as uh, Tukibuki. Yeah. And so just as we're beginning to reacquaint ourselves with these movies that, you know, because of colonialism and racism and, you know, you know economic disinterest that were, have been ignored all this time, now how, who knows how many of these are lost to the ages? Yeah, there we don't know for sure yet what the extent of the damage to the archives is, but the building did burn, so there's there's obviously going to be a lot of loss. Um, it's specifically the University of Cape Town, um, but yeah, it's just uh, yeah, specifically because what that university housed was a lot of the uh, um, cinema from various countries in Africa that was not the colonialist cinema. Like it's not because like this is a kind of a it's it's a reckoning that we have is a lot of the cinema of Africa is like documentaries and like you know white people coming over is like look at all this stuff kind of thing and like you know stuff like Traitor Horn um but uh but like this was specifically like the story told by the people from like the all of the the efforts to decolonize the art kind of stuff and and that that is what was in the archive so with Without eternal vigilance, it can happen here. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. So anyway, kind of a sad note to to end off on, but but I but it's but it's I I I I I had to mention it. So anyway, um, but uh, yeah, with that, I think next week, um, this I'm I'm hoping that friends of Dorothy, uh, we're doing it 
until we can get together with this DVD box set and basically go through all of Dorothy Arsner's other films. Until then, I think that this might be a, a semi-regularly weekly podcast. Um, and next week, I think we're going to be doing the 1935 adaptation of Zoe Aiken's Pulitzer Prize winning play, uh, The Old Mate. Um, so that's what we'll be doing next week. And yeah, uh, I guess uh, with that, uh, Mark, thank you once again for being here. Why don't you plug yourself? Well, um, I'm on Twitter at uh, T-H-E underscore H-O-Y-K, the phonetic pronunciation of my name. Uh, I'm always... Uh, you know, making you know, making uh, film observations and uh, retweeting other people who I think have important things to say and who you know you might not have uh, found on your own. Um, I have a uh, blog uh, at uh, Blogspot. It's uh, the pro- it's projector has been drinking dot dot com. I would uh, specifically uh, direct you to uh, you know in the. Uh, an essay I wrote about uh, nine years ago about the reemergence of two previously believed uh, lost films, uh, the uh, uh, No Place Like Home, which was the uh, Perry Henzel's follow-up to The Harder They Come, and uh, Gone with the Pope, uh, Duke Mitchell's uh, uh, follow-up to Massacre Mafia style, which I reviewed in the same fell swoop uh, because they at their first uh, theatrical screenings around that time. And uh, also, uh, by the time this episode drops, the uh, Schmodown uh, free-for-all should be online. And uh, Yeah. We're recording as it's... We're recording at the we started recording right around the time that it that it that it was released i think to the to the patrons so yeah yeah so uh by, so by the time this this comes out uh, i'm in it <laughs> yeah so see see how far i go yeah is he going to win it all is he going to is he going to slug it out with bibs until the very last round <laughs> who knows but uh, anyway there can be only uh, one yes uh, but all right. Um, as for, as for me, uh, you can find me Twitter letterbox at blue gray closet. Uh, if you're listening to this, you're a patron. So thank you very much for listening. Um, yeah, go over and listen to dance, Dorothy dance or Dorothy Arsner podcast. And, um, and yeah, Harold's on a bit of a break. Um, but you know, go, Go listen to go listen to everything, man. Thank you very much for supporting. It 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 means a lot. And uh yeah, this I I love doing this and I'm gonna gonna keep doing it. So Alright. Um yeah, so alright. Uh, uh thanks thanks for being here. We know there's a pull these days when it comes to films to focus only on the big and mainstream stuff. So thanks for spending time with us today here on the margins. Good night.